Uh, Make your way to the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. We're looking at a passage of Scripture. It's probably familiar to many of us. It's a passage concerning Jesus calming the storm. We can also find this story in the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. The reason we're coming to the Gospel of Mark this morning is because Mark places this event immediately after the parables that we've been looking at for the last couple of months. And within this passage, I think we're going to see some comical features. I hope when you read Scripture, you can find the humor of God now and again. And we're going to learn a lot about who Jesus Christ is and who we are in relation to Him uh, as He being our Savior. So we're just going to jump right in this morning, uh, beginning in verse 35 of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to read through verse 41. The word Lord says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crown, they took with him, they took took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you right now and we are so thankful for your goodness, your mercy, for your love. Those things that we just worshiped you about through song. And Lord, we want to open your scripture right now and your spirit and your voice to speak to our hearts that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is ready to accept what you lay before us. Father, I pray that it not be my word, but it be your word that transforms us, because that is the only power that is in this place, is your presence and your authority. And so we ask in this moment, this time, that you do a great mighty work in us that we may not even know needs to be done. But you know where our heart is. You know the things we're going through. You know what we're struggling with. You know what we're praising you about. And so we come before you and humbly submit ourselves to you, that we would become a living sacrifice in this place, that we would be transformed more into your likeness, and that we would find yet another way to worship the greatness of your name, for you are worthy. We pray for your forgiveness if we failed you in any way in this time as we gathered in your name, if we have not been focused on you. But Lord, give us a heart that is focused, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in this moment, that we would give you all that we have. We ask that your kingdom and your will be done, and we thank you for everything you continue to do in our lives and in the life of this church. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, amen. We come into Mark chapter 4, and uh, it's been a long day for Jesus. This uh, is a series of events that began in the beginning of chapter 4, and we come to this calming of the storm on the banks of the Sea of Galilee or on the Sea of Galilee, and almost it gives us a bookend to chapter 4. We know that Jesus was teaching from a boat because there was such a large crowd. Um, He got into the boat and taught while they all sat on the shore, and he walked them through the parables. And the first thing that we should notice as we come to this event in verse 35 and 36 is to notice that Jesus was on the go. Jesus does this frequently throughout his ministry. He'll arrive at a location, he'll begin teaching, he'll begin healing, he'll begin uh, casting out demons, he'll begin expanding and expounding on some profound truths to the crowd, 
And as he did this, the crowd continued to grow. More people continued to gather. Some came in the crowd who were genuine followers of Jesus Christ. There were some who were in the crowd who were just intrigued. They wanted to hear what he said. They wanted to watch what he did. There were some who were just merely bystanders. They heard something was happening. They wanted to know what all the huss and fuss was about. And then there were some who were absolutely opposed to who Jesus Christ was. But what we found, find throughout the Gospels and Scripture, no matter what type of individuals surrounded Jesus Christ, Jesus always remained faithful to the will and to the purpose of God. We find in Scripture, no matter how big the crowd got, Jesus continued to be on the go. One thing you can notice about Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels is he did not come for fanfare. He did not come for large gatherings to hear him teach. Jesus came to reveal who God was and to correct any misinterpretations that people had concerning the Word of God. He came to save those who were lost. He came to get those who were being led astray. This meant that Jesus would teach in an area, and then he'd go. It's quite a different concept we would have for church ministry or any sort of ministry today. We start to see large gatherings of people. We tend to think that is what makes us healthy. That must mean we're actually doing something correctly. But Jesus did not measure his ministry in that way. He did not view a large gathering of crowds as something as being successful. There are times in Scripture where Jesus would actually excuse the crowd. There are times in Scripture where Jesus would actually say something that would offend the crowd. And then they would leave. Sometimes he would simply call them out for their reasoning for even being around him. Here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has this massive crowd before we come to verse 35. And he decides in this moment with this massive crowd on the shore, it's time to leave. Now what I find humorous about this passage, it comes from verse 36. It says, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Just as he was? How noble of the disciples, right? To take Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb, the sacrificial Messiah, and to take him just as he was. And I always wonder what that meant. Is, is, you know, what, what does that mean, just as he was? I mean, did he smell bad? Did he stink? Did, is something going on that we don't know about? Is it kind of like a parent? I don't know if you ever experienced this as a parent where you're in a hurry, you're running late, and so you tell your child, go upstairs and you dress. We have to get out the door but you forget to put any clothes out for them. So when they come down, nothing matches. It's the most obscene thing you've ever seen on your child. Their hair's all over the place, but you're at this point where we're late. We're taking you as you are. And I wonder, I mean, it seems to imply that here in Scripture that that's what the disciples were doing. Most versions of Scripture have that statement, just as he was. Probably the most correct translation comes from the Christian, Christian Standard Bible, where it means that since he was in the boat. Jesus was already in the, vo- in the boat, though verse 36 here seems to imply that it is the disciples taking the action. They took him with them in the boat just as he was. The true understanding in this, in this moment is Jesus is, in fact, in control. He is the one who is already in the boat. He is the one who is saying, it is now time to go. The disciples didn't take Jesus anywhere. He was already ready. He was already on the move. The taking in verse 36 means the disciples used the means of a boat to take him, most likely Peter's boat. 
And so they began to paddle across the Sea of Galilee. The disciples took Jesus just as much as a car takes us anywhere. It won't go anywhere if we don't put the key in the ignition, we don't turn it on, put it into gear, and press the gas. That's what the meaning is. The disciples took Jesus. They were the engine to the boat to get across the sea where Jesus was leading them. What does this tell us about ourselves? Well, Jesus here is beginning to model ministry for us and model ministry for the church. Ministry must always be on the go. You know, we are celebrating today. We've already clapped numerous times, so we don't need to do it again. We, but we are celebrating today that we have paid off the loan of this church building. We are celebrating the fact that God has been faithful, that he has opened up the heavens and poured forth his blessing upon that endeavor. But just because we've paid off the building doesn't mean we're done. So that's the challenge that's been issued, is we are to come before God and say, God, what's next? Where do you want us to go next? What's the next stage? What's the next plan? Where do we go from this moment? Because, God, we know you want to continue to be glorified. We know you want your name to continue to be spread to the nations. And so, again, the challenge is start praying. God, what's next? As you continue to move, as you continue to go, you are continuing to move and, and telling us to go to the next thing. You are shepherding us. What's also interesting about the movement of Jesus is sometimes in reading this passage, we can tend to forget that Jesus was God in the flesh. Amen? He was God in flesh. He was 100% God, 100% man. And in reading this passage, we can tend to forget that Jesus was in fact that. And what I mean by that is Jesus knew what was going to happen in calling the disciples into the boat to cross the sea. He knew there was a storm that was going to come. He knew there was going to be a great windstorm, as verse 37 says. He knew as they traveled what was going to hit them. Jesus didn't have to pull out his phone. He didn't have to look at a weather app to see what was coming. But he's commanding the disciples to get into the boat, even though a large storm is on its way, and he's not doing it by accident. He knew to get in the boat at this precise moment would supply yet another teachable moment for his disciples. And he's going to use this physical event as a moment to see if they, in fact, understood the parables that he has just been teaching. The great windstorm of verse 37 means a fierce and furious squall. James Edwards writes that the Sea of Galilee lies nearly 700 feet below sea level, in a basin surrounded by hills and mountains that are especially precipitous on the east side. Thirty miles to the northeast, Mount Hermon rises to 9,200 feet above sea level. The interchange between the cold upper air from Mount Hermon and the warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee produces turbulent weather conditions for which the lake is famed. The furious squall, verse 37, which in the Greek can mean hurricane, fits the stories of Galilean fishermen even today to whom... The early evening easterly is known as Sharkia, which is Arabic for shark. And we tend to overlook, Jesus knew this was going to happen. He knew there was a storm coming. And I bring that because sometimes we tend to forget that God knows the storms that are coming in our life. He knows the difficulties that are going to arise. And they may surprise us. But here's a promise we have in God's word. They don't surprise God. They don't surprise our Lord and Savior. He has all time written in his book. This is the same when temptations rise in our life. 
that this event here in Mark is a great illustration of what God tells us in 1 Corinthians. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. These disciples, who some were fishermen, they fished on this sea. They were familiar with the weather. They had spent time on the water. But as this storm is going to be coming, they're going to be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. They're going to be tempted to doubt the identity of Jesus Christ. They're going to actually forget who is, in fact, steering the boat. They think they're still in control. And we can run the same risk when temptations and storms emerge in our life, forgetting who's actually shepherding our life. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, and we are not in control. Jesus is taking his disciples here, Mark 4, from a place where he was in full control of the crowd. He's teaching. Everyone's engaged with him. They're listening to him. And he puts his disciples in a circumstance, in a situation they would have been very familiar with to show them, hey, look, you're not even in control of this. And sometimes we can get in comfortable situations in life, things we can get accustomed to, and we can forget, hey, I'm not in control here. I'm not in charge. We have this great windstorm. It comes in verse 37, it says, and the waves were breaking into the boat. This means water was starting to fill the boat. Now, I've only been in a boat a handful of times in my life, but I know that's probably not a good thing when water starts filling the boat because then the boats will start to sink. So this is a dire circumstance here for the disciples. This is life and death. Keep in mind, life jackets hadn't been invented yet. So these guys are out in the middle of the sea, and disciples come to Jesus, and this is urgency here in verse 38. Do you not care we are perishing? The question means, do you not care that we're about to drown, and we are about to die? They're coming to Jesus, wake up. We're going to die in this. Can you imagine their surprise to find Jesus sleeping? just sleeping in the back of the boat. Well, they're there freaking out. No doubt the image we're to have in our head is they're in this boat and they're using buckets and tools and whatever they can to bail the water out of the boat. They concluded in this moment, death is inevitable. What's the problem? They forgot who's in the boat. Jesus didn't come to die in a boating accident. Amen? (laughs) He came to die on the cross. We're also told, I don't know why I never saw this, in verse 36, there were other boats with him. There were other boats filled with people in this very moment going through the same thing, yet here's Jesus sleeping. If you like Bible trivia, this is the only time in Scripture we're told, outside of Matthew and Luke's account, that Jesus slept. We know he did. He had an earthly body. Again, we say he was 100% man, 100% God, and 100% man, he had an earthly body. We know he felt emotions throughout Scripture. He wept. He had compassion. We know he got hungry and he thirsted. 
And a lot of people want to point that Jesus is sleeping because he's so worn out from doing all the ministry he's been doing. And yes, ministry is exhausting. If you're plugged in, which you should be, into any sort of ministry, it is going to exhaust you. It is going to wear you out. It is going to frustrate you. But I believe what is happening here that Jesus is sleeping in the boat in the midst of the storm is because Jesus found rest in the Father. Jesus knew his Father had a plan. Jesus knew what that plan was. And so Jesus didn't get overwhelmed when this storm came because he knew what the ultimate plan for him to come was, and that is for dying on the cross for the sins of the world and rising from the grave. Jesus, again, knew this storm would come, but he knew his Father and our Father is the God of the storm. Jesus found rest in the Father of creation who created the sea. He found rest in the God of creation who created the mountains. He found rest in the God of creation who created the means for this storm to even exist. He found rest in the work of the Father. And here he is, he's doing the Father's will. He knows the ultimate plan of the Father, and so he's, he's not worried. He's not in panic mode. But there's an issue in there, because Jesus does have an edge on us, right? He knows all things and we don't. We don't always see the storms coming. Jesus has an edge on us in this passage and another one, in that he, he knew the ultimate end game. He knew where he was going. And we don't tend to have that in life. A couple of weeks ago, Dave and Charlotte and I were talking out in the foyer, and we were talking about how God never gives us the full plan. And you look in Scripture, God never gives sinful individuals like us the full plan. And for example, I just want to go to an individual we're probably familiar with in Scripture, by a man by the name of Moses. Okay, so in Moses, in the book of Exodus, Moses has this encounter with God at a burning bush. And God gives him part of the plan, right? Hey, I'm going to send you Moses as my instrument to go to Egypt to redeem my people. And here's the thing, Moses, it's going to happen, and you're going to bring them back here, and you're going to worship me with them. But you notice that God never gave Moses the complete plan. He never told Moses the full picture. And I was kind of imagining that this week. What if God had done that to Moses? What if he told him the whole plan? What Everything was going to take place. And this is how I imagine it. Here's God speaking to Moses. All right, Moses, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to redeem my people. I know you're hesitant. I know you're a little reluctant. I know you're kind of afraid about how you talk. I gave you your tongue, by the way, but that's all right. I'm going to send your brother Aaron to you, and I'm going to speak to you, Moses, and then you're going to speak to Aaron, and then Aaron will kind of be like your microphone, and you're going to go, and you're going to speak to Pharaoh. You're going to let the Egyptians and Pharaoh know that I am the one true God. There's no other God but me, and so in order for this to happen, I'm going to send 10 plagues, Moses, and you're going to go through these plagues. You're going to experience them. And then you're going to be able to bring my people back to that mountain over there, and you're going to be able to worship me, and I'm going to consume the mountain before I lead you and the people to the land I promised your forefather Abraham. Again, that mountain over there, I'm going to consume it, Moses. My presence is going to be all over it. And then I'm going to call you, Moses, to come up the mountain and camp out with me for 40 days. And I'm going to give you my laws, I'm going to give you my commandments, and you're going to deliver it to all the people. With that said, Moses, I just got to give you a heads up. 
You're going to bring these people out, and they're going to initially love my presence on that mountain. But after so many days, they're going to kind of get anxious, and they're going to build for themselves a false idol by the aid of your brother Aaron. Yeah, the same Aaron that's going to help you while you're in Egypt. He's going to build this thing, and they're going to say, that's the God that brought you out. Um, By the way, this is not going to be the first time Aaron's going to be an issue for you, Moses. Uh, He's going to be a thorn in your side quite frequently. And so I can see you're worried. Moses, hang on, there's a little bit more. So when you come down the mountain with the law, written by my hand, by the way, you're going to come across your buddy Joshua. You haven't met him yet, but you're going to love him. And you and Joshua are going to hear this commotion in the camp that sounds like a war cry. And so you're going to come in the camp and see what they have been doing while you're up on the mountain. And you're going to get so mad, you're going to throw down my law and break it, which was written by my hand, which is okay, Moses. We'll rewrite it. You're going to write it this time. And I'm going to give you some instructions, Moses, on how you and the people are to build a tabernacle. Just picture a really big tent. And every time I stop somewhere, you're going to set up camp. And every time I tell you to move, you've got to take it all down and you've got to carry it. You're probably wondering how long is that going to be. That's kind of the problem, Moses. You see, the people that you're going to bring out, they're a bunch of grumblers. They're a bunch of crybabies. They have trouble following instructions. So long story short, you're going to end up wandering around in the desert for about 40 years. And I know what you're thinking. You're already 80, so that's going to make you 120. Um, I'm not quite done, Moses. Just know you're going to get upset. And know you're going to do some things that you're going to ultimately regret. And remember how I told you that you're going to come to this mountain and you're going to lead them to the promised land? A little plot twist. You're not going to get to go. You're going to die. Anyway, Moses, that's the plan. Are you in? You think Moses, would, he was already reluctant. You think if God gave him the whole plan, how everything was going to play out, Moses would be like, amen, let's do it. Jesus didn't even give the full plan. Jesus didn't tell the disciples, hey, this is what's going to happen when you get in the boat. This is what's going to happen when we go across the water. Matter of fact, when Jesus called the disciples for the first time, he didn't give them the full plan. He didn't say, hey, come follow me, and most of you are going to die horrific deaths. One of you is going to survive, but then you're going to be exiled onto an island. See, God doesn't have to give us the full plan. And Jesus didn't have to do it to the disciples here. He just said, get in the boat. He doesn't tell them what's going to happen. Yeah, we did this image from Jesus when we are where God calls us to be. No matter what storms come in our life, no matter what we can or can't understand, no matter what looms ahead, we can always find rest in the Father because he is faithful. We don't have it, but he does. And all things, all things, here they get, all things are under his authority. That's what makes him sovereign. So come back here in Mark. Jesus wakes up. Waterbed slumber, right? <laughs> First waterbed in Scripture. Some of you are like, what's a waterbed? Yeah, different generations. Sorry. But Jesus wakes up. 
And he wakes up to the screaming of his disciples. And then he creates what I would say is the first cancel culture. He rebukes the wind and the sea. That word rebuke is most commonly used by Jesus when he's rebuking demons. He's already done that in his ministry. Disciples have seen it. They've witnessed it. They've experienced it. But here, Jesus is rebuking nature. He's showing his authority over nature. The word peace literally means to be quiet, to hush. Some of us may say to shut up. Jesus is saying, shut up sea. Shut up wind. To be still is telling the winds and the sea to be muzzled. So you have a dog who barks. It's kind of like when you tell them to be quiet and they don't, and you kind of put your hand over their nose. You muzzle them. It's to keep them quiet. And these two commands that Jesus delivers here in Scripture, like I said, he typically addresses to demons or human beings. But in this moment, Jesus is showing his disciples and he's showing us through Scripture. He has the authority over nature as he dresses it in a way to reveal his full authority as creator. God in the flesh. And notice when Jesus does this, there in verse 39, all the craziness ceases. The sea went from death-delivering waves to complete calmness. It says a great calm here in the ESV. There was a great windstorm. And then at the words of Jesus, there was a great calm, which led the disciples, notice there in verse 41, to have a great fear. Where once they feared for their lives, now they are fearing the one whose presence they're in. They're having an awe. That, that's what that means. It's an awe. It's reverential. It's being totally amazed. And what jumped out at me again this week as I was reading through this passage and I've read this numerous times. But the disciples' response there in verse 41. Who is then is this? Their question is, who is this man? See, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was yet. They, who is this guy that's able to do what he just did? And then they said that even the wind and the sea obey him. And I bring this up because it made me wonder this week, what were the disciples actually expecting Jesus to do? Because it wasn't calming the storm. I believe they just wanted to wake him up so they can have another set of hands bailing out the water. Because when he does what, they, what he did, they obviously were not ready for that. And so what we learn in this moment is that Jesus is greater. He is greater than the great windstorm. He's greater than the storms that come in our life. And Jesus' question, question there in verse 41 to disciples is a form of rebuke, just like he just rebuked the sea and the wind. He says, why are you so afraid? That word afraid literally means cowardly. Now, how great of a man do you have to be to call out 12 other men as cowards? Then he says, have you still no faith? And the meaning of that is, where is your faith? Implying, after all you've just seen me do, they've already witnessed the casting out of demons. They've already witnessed the healings of people. Have you already seen what I have done? After you've already heard what I have taught, you're showing no faith at all. You're no, showing no faith in who I am as, 
the Messiah. You're showing no faith in the kingdom of God that I just taught about through the parables. And Jesus isn't rebuking the disciples in, the, in this moment because of their lack of understanding. Because we have to keep in mind, they're still growing. They're still learning. He's rebuking them in this moment because of their fear and their lack of trust in who he is. Their hope and desire was simply to survive the night. That's all they wanted from Jesus in that moment. But Jesus had a greater hope and desire for them, just as he does for us. In this moment here in Scripture, Jesus revealed his full authority and authority he was going to pass on to them when he ascended into heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit. That same authority Jesus has given every single believer in this room and the dwelling Holy Spirit inside of us. In this world, there are going to be a lot of individuals and there are going to be a lot of parties that like to boast and like to act great. We have to keep in mind Jesus is greater. And we belong to Jesus. He is greater than any storm we may face in life. He is greater than any fears or doubts that may creep into our heart. He is greater than any illness that may come upon our life. He is greater than any lack of understanding we may have. In this story, we have this great windstorm, which means a great the greatness of Jesus, and then there's this great calm, and then this great fear, this awe. It is to be in awe. This is what we remember when the storms of life come. No matter what we face, Jesus is greater. And we can always be in awe of him because he is the God who can calm the storms, and he is the God who saves lives. Again, going back to the very beginning, I don't know if you all ever saw this before, but I, I don't know why it jumped out to me. Verse 36, and other boats were with him. We kind of overlooked that because we only get the action in this boat. <laughs> but what that tells us is Jesus didn't save his boat. He didn't just save his disciples. He saved everyone else in the other boats as well. And maybe that's the message you need to hear this morning. I don't know where everybody is in life, but Jesus came to save. And that's why we preach the gospel. And the gospel is laid out from Genesis to Revelation. And, and what we see in, in the gospel is that God created every individual to be in relationship with him. But every individual wrestles with sin. And it's that sin that is separating us from that relationship. And a lot of times people think, well, if I just do good things, if I just go to church, if I just give money, if I whatever, we come up with our list of righteousness. And what the gospel reveals is that we cannot do anything to remove our sin problem. And if our sin problem is not taken care of, we will die in that sin and be forever separated from the God who loves us. This is why Jesus came. Again, he didn't come to die in a boat accident. He came to die on a cross to take the full wrath, the full punishment from a holy God for our sins. It was poured out upon him. And as Dave mentioned, when Jesus said it is finished, it meant he completed it. He paid it in full once and for all. The Bible says they placed him in a tomb, where he remained for three days, but then he arose from that tomb to show he has power over death, he has the power to forgive sins, and he has the power to grant eternal life. And the Bible says it is only by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone in the work he has done to which we may be saved. And so if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, you've yet to confess 
your need for forgiveness. You have to confess your need to have eternal life and be in relationship with God. Then you're in the wrong boat. And we're going to come this time of invitation. I'm just going to ask you to come down. And I'm not saying you've got to understand everything about it. The disciples obviously didn't understand everything. But you understand this one thing. I need Jesus because I want to go to heaven. So I'm going to just ask you to come down the aisle. You, you can stand here. You can just sit in the front row and you can just say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. And we'll talk and we'll celebrate. Bridget and the guys are going to come up and lead us in a song. I want to pray over us real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you're Lord of all. The heavens are proclaiming your holiness and your worthiness. And Lord, you are good. Your word says you love us, even in our faults, even in our weaknesses. And Father, there's someone here this morning who has yet to make that confession of faith. I pray, Lord, your spirit would get a hold of their heart and they wouldn't be able to stay where they stand. That today would be the day of their salvation. But Lord, there are people in this room that are going through difficult times. There are people in this room that are struggling. Help us to stay focused on who you are. And your word says you will never leave us or forsake us and that nothing can separate us from you. Thank you for that incredible promise. You're in charge. We submit to your authority in this moment. Pray your kingdom and will will be done as we come this time of invitation. Praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.